Well, I turn this evening to Mark chapter 11. We'll be reading verses 1 through 11 of this chapter. This is what is known as the this is account of what's often known as Palm Sunday or Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. If we were following a liturgical calendar, I might have preached this last week. Um, but we come here to read about an acknowledgement this evening of the kingship of Jesus Christ from the people who were around him during his earthly ministry. And so. Uh, Let's uh, read now Mark chapter 11, verses 1 through 11, and then we'll get into our sermon for the evening. But let's attend with reverence to this reading, for this is the word of God, as it was given to Mark, and as he uh, wrote, uh, yes, as the early church fathers uh, said, uh, by the testimony mainly of Peter, but, uh, but wrote by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, so it is an infallible account of what occurred. So let's read God's word. Now when they drew near Jerusalem to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples and he said to them, go into the village opposite you and as soon as you have entered it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has sat. Loose it and bring it. And if anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it. And immediately he will send it here. So they went their way and found the colt tied by the door outside on the street, and they loosed it. But some of those who stood there sat or said to them, What are you doing, loosing the colt? And they spoke to them just as Jesus had commanded, so they let them go. Then they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their clothes on it and sat on it. And many spread their clothes on the road, and others cut down leafy branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And those who went before and those who followed cried out, saying, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the kingdom of our father David that comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And Jesus went into Jerusalem and into the temple. So when he had looked around at all things, as the hour was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Well, it's uh, Turn to the Lord now in prayer as we have finished the reading of his word for this time. Lord, we do thank you again for your written word that we have this privilege of um, having a testimony from you, in this case of the earthly ministry of Christ and of an acknowledgement of his kingship. As we consider that kingship this evening, we pray that you would help us ever to be ready to proclaim and to serve Christ as our King, and we as his faithful and loving subjects. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as Jesus made his, uh, as I mentioned, what's known often as his triumphal entry into Jerusalem the week of his crucifixion, the people blessed him, as we just read, as he who comes in the name of the Lord. In fact, they were crying out, Hosanna, which means Lord, save But here they're recognizing he is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Both of those uh, statements, Hosanna and blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, actually come from Psalm 118, which the people, of course, would have been singing 
that week as it was Passover week and they were preparing to be uh, for the Passover when they would sing Psalms 113 through 118. And so this was on their mind and they're, they're actually proclaiming Jesus as a fulfillment of that psalm. And in fact, as we compare the Gospels, we find uh, Jesus actually tells the temple leadership that uh, they need to be saying the same thing. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And we see here that as they're doing this, as Jesus is about to enter into Jerusalem, they spread their cloaks and leafy branches on the road, as if to say, even the donkey which he was riding, which was in fulfillment of Zechariah's prophecy that the Lord would come, that the king uh, would come riding lowly on a donkey, But as they're spreading these cloaks and leafy branches on the road, it's as if to say that even the donkey on which he rode should not have its foot soiled by the ground. Uh, This is, in fact, a uh, declaration of kingship itself, something that we see in Old Testament passages. For example, in 2 Kings, when Jehu is declared to be king, the one who's supposed to overthrow Ahab and get rid of Jezebel and all of their seed, And he uh, comes out after the prophet Elisha has declared him to be the next king of Israel and his servants spread their cloaks on the steps. It was a known custom that uh, meant this is a king, this is royalty. Again, as if his feet are too good to touch the earth. So this is a declaration of Jesus' kingship. They were acknowledging him as the rightful king who brought, as they said here, the kingdom of our father David. Although we know uh, from the Gospels that many of, uh, many of those who welcomed Christ as king had an inaccurate and indeed maybe a small and petty view of what that meant, the fact is that this event was the first great proclamation of Jesus as king. Blessed is the kingdom of our father David. They're expecting at least a restoration of of the kingdom of our father David. The Magi had honored him as king of the Jews. The disciples knew he was God's anointed. Many had acknowledged him as the son of David throughout his earthly ministry. In fact, not long before this, Jesus healed blind Bartimaeus, who was crying out, as Jesus was in the vicinity of Jericho and is passing by him, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. But now with millions of Jews, it was generally estimated about two million or so converged on Jerusalem each Passover. So millions are crowding into Jerusalem for Passover. Here the whole nation, as it were, is proclaiming him king. They're saying, this is our king. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the king that was predicted. Let's lay our cloaks on the ground and put leafy branches on the ground to proclaim him to be king. Westminster Confession of Faith, faith, which we have been studying, uh, points to the, the Bible's teaching that Christ has this threefold office as mediator, that he is prophet, priest, and king. And we're going to handle this evening his office of kingship, that he is king. In 2 Samuel 7, verses 12 through 16, 
The Lord promises David, as the ESV translates it, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Well, in an immediate but a smaller sense, this was fulfilled by King Solomon, of course, as, and also the kings of David's line after him. Solomon built a temple for the name of the Lord. And God certainly chastised both him Particularly uh, for David's sake, he let the chastisement wait until after Solomon's death. But Solomon was told that his kingdom would be divided because of his errors. And the kings of Judah after him were often chastised by human agents, the rods of men, as the Lord said. Like the Assyrians and the Babylonians invading northern and southern parts of the northern and southern kingdoms of the Israelites, Israel and Judah, respectively. But the ultimate fulfillment of this promise from God to David is in Christ Jesus. It's Christ who really builds a house for the name of the Lord. He builds the church, the true temple. And although he had no iniquity in himself, no sins or guilt of his own to be chastised for, he would take on himself the guilt of all of his people. Our iniquity was upon him, as Isaiah 53 tells us, and he received the stripes of men. That is, men would wound him. He would be punished by the hand of men, but it would be God behind that hand as he received the penalty for the sins of his people. And he establishes God's kingdom And sits on David's throne not for a brief period of time of a human life, but forever, as God promised he would do here for David's son. Many of the people who welcomed Jesus into Jerusalem recognized he was king. But they were probably expecting a mere earthly fulfillment of this promise. This is one of the reasons John tells us, actually, that Jesus tried to keep it secret early on that he was the Messiah, lest the people try to make him king by force. He he wasn't coming to establish an earthly kingdom, a merely earthly kingdom, whereby people would rise up and cause a revolution and drive the Romans out of the land and establish David's kingdom. He was not there to establish a mere kingdom that would at its greatest extent, if it reflected David and Solomon's kingdom, it might reach to the Euphrates River and down to Egypt and from the other side of the Jordan River to the, to the Mediterranean. But it was to be a worldwide kingdom and at the same time a kingdom that is not of this world. People were looking for the first kingdom ruled by a king of David's line in over 600 years. But notice... In God's promise to David, 
The son who would do this would not only establish David's kingdom, he would establish God's kingdom. He would not only be a son of David, but God said he will be a son to me. And in fact, that is fulfilled as the only begotten son of God is incarnated as a son of David. As Paul says in Romans 1, uh, according to the flesh, he was a son of David, but his resurrection declared him to be the son of God. So in John 18, 36, he could describe his kingdom to Pontius Pilate as, my kingdom is not of this world. It's something greater and beyond it. Yes, it has a manifestation in this world, and yes, it is advancing in this world, but it's not from this world. It's not going to function in the way that earthly, mere earthly kingdoms function. Another way of talking about Christ's kingdom is to talk about his church. Because that is the outpost of his kingdom in this world. Ephesians 1.22 tells us Christ's reign is as head over all things, and he's been given to the church. He is the head of the church. Colossians 1 tells us he's the head of the body, the church. In 1 Peter 2.9, Peter calls the church a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. We are a nation, a people group, made out of people from all kinds of other people, uh, people groups, but adopted into God's family. And thus, a chosen race, a chosen people, that is, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Revelation 1.6 says, Christ made us a kingdom and priests to his God and Father. The church is his kingdom. His kingship over us is summarized well by our catechisms. The Westminster Shorter Catechism says, Christ executeth the office of a king in subduing us to himself, in ruling and defending us, and in restraining and conquering all his and our enemies. So he subdues us to himself, so he trains us to be his servants and subjects. He rules and defends us like a good king should, and he restrains and conquers our enemies in our defense, as a good king should. The larger catechism expands that. It says, Christ executeth the office of a king in calling out of the world a people to himself, and giving them officers. Laws and censures, by which he visibly governs them in bestowing saving grace on his elect, rewarding their obedience, correcting them for their sins, preserving and supporting them under all their temptations and sufferings, restraining and overcoming all their enemies, and powerfully ordering all things for his own glory and their good, and also in taking vengeance on the rest who know not God and obey not the gospel. So as an earthly king, but on a grander scale in cosmic way, he rewards good and he punishes evil. He gives all of the structure of government, as it were, for his kingdom, for his people. So as our king, he calls his church out of the world. He calls us to be citizens of his kingdom. He defines the border of his kingdom. And he says, this is who is in. 
and this is who is not. Maybe some earthly leaders need to learn a few lessons about that. He gives us officers, elders, pastors to govern and discipline us. He gives us laws. He gives us the scriptures to be governed by. He gives us everything necessary to be his subjects and citizens. That's his grace. He rewards our obedience and he corrects our disobedience, just like a good earthly leader should do in terms of the laws of the land. And he supports us as we're tempted and suffer. He protects and defends us, ultimately conquering our enemies, especially sin and death. But we also see that Christ's kingship does not stop with the church. Yes, the church is, in a very express and direct way, the kingdom of Jesus Christ. But in Revelation, we read that all the kingdoms of the earth are going to be the kingdom of the Lord and his Christ. Christ's mediatorial kingship is not just over the church. In fact, uh, that would only refer to his mediatorship in terms of his mediatorial role as being mediating between sinners and God to reconcile us. But his mediatorial role goes well beyond that. In Matthew 28, 18, Jesus declared, as we noted this morning, all authority, not some authority, in heaven and on earth, not all authority in some places, but all authority everywhere, has been given to me. That means, in fact, that all legitimate governing authority in the whole world derives from Jesus Christ. And any government that fails to recognize the authority of Christ over it is in rebellion against God. That's what Psalm 2 is actually talking about. In Psalm 2, we read, Why do the nations rage? We'll get to sing this here in a little while. Why do the nations rage? And the people plot a vain thing. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, that is Christ. If you're translating that word anointed into Greek, it's Christos. It's where we get our word Christ from. In Old Testament Hebrew, it's Messiah. Against the Lord and against his Christ, saying, let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. So the... Leaders on earth, governments on earth, in general, have often tended to try to break free, as if they could, from the rule of God and his anointed king, Jesus Christ. And here's God's response in verses 4 through 6. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. He's laughing at them like a... I've compared this in the past to... uh, Like a, a... Think of a mighty warrior covered in armor and little three-year-old boys trying to beat on his shins with his bare fists as if that's going to, to bring him down. And he just laughs in derision. He's not laughing as if this is actually humorous. Psalm goes on and says, Then he shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. Yet I have set my king on my holy hill in Zion doesn't matter whether you want to be under the rule of my king. I've done it. Deal with it. So as if God is saying that. And then we hear the point of view of the king. I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance 
and the ends of the earth for your possession. So all the nations belong to Jesus. You shall break them with a rod of iron and shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. So there's a clay pot being smashed with a rod of iron. That's what happens to nations that refuse to submit to Christ. Now therefore be wise. So here's the call. You don't have to be like that. Governments of the earth. You don't have to fail to submit to Christ and be smashed like a clay pot with a rod of iron. Now therefore be wise, O kings. Be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all those who put their trust in him. Put your trust in Jesus Christ. Not just individuals, but governments of the earth. Put your trust in Jesus Christ, and you won't be destroyed. We have a right affection for the nation in which God has placed us. It is good for us to love the nation. We don't have to love everything about it. There are sinful things about it. Though we live in a nation that has been, by God's grace, in many cases, a greater force for good in world history than it has been a force for bad. Many people fail to see that these days. If we want the nation to survive, we should want it then to submit to Christ, because it won't if it doesn't. All legitimate governing authority in the world derives from Jesus. We'll cover this more when we get to the lessons on what Presbyterians believe concerning civil government. But what Psalm 2 is saying is that any king, any nation, any government that fails to kiss the Son, that doesn't honor Christ as God's chosen king over the nations of the earth, is in a state of abject rebellion against their rightful ruler and will suffer punishment for it if they do not repent. Now, as we'll see in later sermons, Lord willing, you and I still have to honor all authority as from God. So we can't say, well, the government's in rebellion against Jesus, so I don't have to listen to the government. God still expects us to, except when the government is is commanding us to disobey God or forbidding us from obeying him. But this shows us the importance of God-honoring governments. It's a myth, an absolute logical fallacy to think that a government can take a religiously neutral position. There is no such thing. When a government tries to take a religiously neutral position, it's actually taking the position of humanism or atheism, which is a religious position. Either the rulers, as Psalm 2 says, of the earth, either the rulers of the earth kiss the sun, or he is angry at their rebellion. Jesus tells his disciples, you are either with me or you're against me. There is no sitting on the fence with Jesus. There is no such thing as a religiously neutral position. So Christ's kingship over his church is an aspect of his kingship, but also his kingship over the whole world. His kingship is over both the church and the whole world. A third aspect of Christ's kingship is that he will be universally acknowledged one day. Maybe not now, but God will make it happen. So either you humble yourself or you will be humbled, the kingdoms of the earth are being told. Philippians 2, 10 through 11 promises a day when every knee shall bow 
in heaven and on earth and under the earth. So even the demons in hell will have to bow to Jesus, even though they hate it. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. In Psalm 2, the nations rage, that's present tense, in their rebellion against the Son. In Revelation eleven eighteen, we're told that the nations raged, past tense. It's translated in various ways, but the, the term refers to raging. At the time of the fulfillment of John's vision, the rebellion of earthly powers will be in the past. And the church will sing, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and reigned. Or that can be translated as begun to reign. There was a television program I used to enjoy back when I had a satellite and used to watch... Uh, Broadcast TV nowadays, Kim and I just stream everything that we want to watch. But, but I, I used to watch Wretched with Todd Friel and, and uh, still occasionally catch it on YouTube or something that uh, I don't know about now, but it used to be that Mr. Friel would always end his program with the same encouragement, saying, until next time or until tomorrow, go serve your king. Christian, you have a king. We like to think, of course, in the independence of American history, we said that we gave up kings. We'd had enough of kings. But no, we have a king. We've given up fallible earthly kings in the sense of having a direct absolute ruler, but we haven't given up government. That would be chaos. But we haven't really given up kingship either, or we should, should not have. We have a king. And you as a Christian are in a separate kingdom. You've been called out of the world. You've been made citizens of his heavenly kingdom. So Paul could say in Philippians 3.20, our citizenship is in heaven. He's given you earthly rulers, civil leaders, as well as church officers, through whom he governs you. He bestowed royal gifts by his grace on you. In a few weeks' time, we'll be, Lord willing, in 1 Corinthians in the morning service, talking about special spiritual gifts that Christ has given to Christians. He's given many other gifts to you. He rewards your obedience. He lays up treasures for you in heaven for the things you do in his service now. And he gives you benefits even now for his service. He corrects you in your sin. In your rebellion, in your wrongful acts, he will correct you. Not as somebody simply abjectly punishing a wrongdoer, but some, someone correcting a child. He protects and maintains you. He restrains and conquers your enemies. What do you have to fear from the world if Christ will restrain and conquer it for you? In fact, he's already overcome it. He decrees all things to occur for his glory and for your good. He punishes evil in general. 
And he does these things perfectly and in all righteousness. An earthly ruler can try to do these things, but even the best earthly ruler will fail because of his limitations. He won't see something, or he might get the wrong end of the stick about who's right and wrong if he's settling a dispute. Jesus won't ever get anything wrong. You don't have to worry about having a king who will misrule you either uh, through making mistakes or by selfishness and sin. You know, there's an old saying that says, absolute power, or rather power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. That's actually a false statement. Absolute power will absolutely corrupt a sinner. But Christ wields absolute power, and he will never be corrupted by that. So you don't have to worry about having a fallen, fallible man ruling over you who would misuse the authority that he has. He won't ever misrule you. Christ will always rule you rightly. You don't have a king who will mismanage your treasury or forget you or actively oppress you. You don't have a king who will die and so no matter how good he is will live a certain amount of years and then die and get replaced maybe by a son who isn't quite so smart or isn't quite so good or isn't quite so adept or competent. He won't leave his kingdom in less capable hands. But rather you have the perfect, righteous, holy, eternal King, Jesus Christ. The kings of the earth need to recognize this and submit to him. But you already know that you have such a king. So bow to him. And until next time, go serve your king. Let's pray. We thank you, O Lord, that you have made us a kingdom for your Son, that you've made us citizens of your heavenly kingdom. We pray that the kings of the earth would recognize his lordship over them, for he is King of kings and Lord of lords. We pray that they would kiss the Son lest he be angry. We pray also that you would encourage us ever to embrace him and not to let go of him, that we might submit voluntarily to his rule, which is just and good. And let us always serve faithfully our gracious and good and all-powerful King. For we pray in his name. Amen.